Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learned with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. Issues around energy are constantly in the news and may even be more so at the moment. Gas prices are seemingly coming down after an extended high, but it isn't clear that's going to continue. Europe is struggling to keep the lights on thanks to autocrats disrupting supply and bureaucrats making demands, at least as far as the types of energy that they will allow. In the U.S., the infrastructure deal from earlier in the year earmarked major investments in alternative energy, and regulators and activists both continued to attack more readily available forms of energy. Oh, and there was a UN conference on climate in Egypt to tack on to the news cycle. Among right-leaning think tanks and policy groups, research on energy and the myriad regulations related to energy production have long been a major topic of interest. Today, we're going to explore what's going on with energy and regulation. We have three great groups to update us. Competitive Enterprise Institute, Energy and Environment Legal Institute, and the Institute for Energy Research. So let's jump in. Kicking off the discussion today, I'm happy to have Kent Lastman from the Competitive Enterprise Institute to talk with me. CEI, as it's known, is an institution in D.C. around issues of regulation, the administrative state, energy, environment, and how it all works together and how it too often works against most of us. Kent is president and CEO of CEI. So Kent, I've framed up this issue or this episode around energy and regulation and and how those two issues can overlap. Uh, And really, that's at the core of what you all do there at CEI. So talk to us about what CEI does. How would you describe it? Uh, Well, Peter, you've probably heard me refer to Washington, D.C. as the imperial city, which is constantly pushing out and reaching into our lives. Uh, At the Competitive Enterprise Institute, I like to think that we operate behind enemy lines. Uh, We're dedicated to reforming the regulatory state and to eliminate regulatory barriers to how we live. That means how we work, how we travel, how we bank, how we communicate with each other. Um, Altogether, we're pointed at less regulation and more freedom. And I think importantly, especially for areas that are less well studied, like regulation, for making our government fair for everyone. And, and to get there, that means we need a limited and accountable regulatory state. So the regulations are the big thing. Energy has always been a part of that for you. And, and uh, I know a lot of people look to you when it comes to energy and environment issues, both on the left and the right, uh, some friendly, some not. But I know you were in Egypt recently for the big climate change pack conference, the COP27, uh, and you were there as an observer. What were your impressions of the event and what came out of it? Um, well, disappointment, uh, as my father might have said. Uh, unfortunately, the United Nations and the different programs that it runs, including the COP meetings, which are focused on climate, uh, I think they've really lost the thread. Um, the COP meetings now, nearly three decades on, they're both designed for and advertised to address 
the challenges that can come from climate change. The COP that we have, the COP that I uh, attended in Egypt last month, it is something else entirely. The big focus was on something in their jargon that they call loss and damage. And what that means, it's uh, uh, obscure or complicated words, simply to mean how do we transfer money? How do we take wealth from developed nations and move it to less developed nations? Uh, now, I, I understand some people say that's all the UN does. Uh, what makes the COP special, and especially uh, maybe tending toward farce, is that these meetings are focused on climate activity. And those trillions of dollars of transfers that they are approving and patting each other on the back for, they will have no meaningful effect on climate. And now, that's not just Kent Lastman or, or CEI. That's according to their own reports and their own analysis. So they're choosing to do things uh, with very high costs and burdens, no upside benefit, and uh, it is not what they're advertising. Uh, it's simply a wealth transfer. And you put out some great videos that are on your website, cei.org, uh, where people can see some of your interviews and things. I mean, is there any pushback, any way, big picture, or things that CEI can do to challenge what's coming out of there? Or, or is it fairly insignificant, and at the end of the day, nobody cares anyway? I think the most important thing to remember, and one of the things that we really stress with uh, our federal lawmakers, uh, with America's federal lawmakers, as we talk about the COP and the things like the Paris Climate Treaty, would have, which have uh, been a product of this process, is that none of this, none of this activity through the UN is self-executing. All of it requires, uh, in a liberal representative democracy like the United States of America, all of it requires implementation through law. Other countries, uh, autocracies, they can, they can go and pledge or promise something at one of these big uh, fancy meetings and then just go home and do it. For Americans, and I think this is a very important safeguard, it's a feature, not a bug. When John Kerry or Joe Biden flies off to one of these meetings, makes a promise, he has to come home and convince the Congress to pass a law. And raising the awareness of lawmakers of what is being said in their name, but they, they are not being asked to actually implement, uh, that is very important. And it's uh, raising some important red flags and I think can shape the future discussions over things like um, subsidies here in America that are being uh, passed out left and right through uh, this administration and, and recent post-COVID legislation. Coming out of that, here we are at the end of the year as well. As you look towards 2023, what are the big energy policy items that you all are focused on? First and foremost, the priority uh, for energy policy has to be, uh, whether we're speaking on an international stage or more, more and most importantly here in, in America, affordable and abundant, especially reliable energy. Uh, energy is this master resource. We can't build things, we can't feed ourselves, we can't move things around without energy. It, it comes at the beginning of the equation when you talk about what uh, people want to do or how they want to go about doing it. And the big threats that are uh, ongoing they're not just on the radar. They're not just out there. They are happening right now. 
in the current Congress and the current administration, I think are in two areas. And the first is uh, any sort of system that allows for Americans to build. Uh, what, I'm, what I'm specifically referring to here is a permitting process, reforms to the process that is enabled by our National Environmental Permitting Act. Uh, they've been talked about extensively in the Congress over the last three and four months, particularly with uh, lawmakers like Joe Manchin at the forefront of that conversation. What we've seen so far come from uh, our national policymakers on permitting reform has really been um, kind of superficial benefits along with some very negative baggage uh, that would federalize what is otherwise state authority. Uh, so we're very focused on that and we'll continue to, to work on that and educate lawmakers about directions that they could take that would be much more positive. And the second area is the result of something called ESG. Uh, this is a movement in corporate governance and it is spread into, especially into financial regulation, where uh, companies are uh, held to standards for environment, social, and governance goals for how to run their companies. And uh, in, in many dangerous ways, I think the federal regulatory agencies, starting with the Securities and Exchange Commission, are backdooring regulation through this ESG movement. And that's a, a very important area of the fight for energy policy. You know, one of the important roles of CEI, one of the important roles of anything tank is kind of stay on top of the things that normal people should care about, but don't have time to worry about. And regulations have come up a number of times. It's one of those things that's easy for Washington to slip in. You all have a great pub publication called the 10,000 Commandments that Wayne Cruz does and looks at all the massive nonstop growth in uh, federal regulations. Why don't you talk briefly about that and the role of, of it, the value of it to your work? Uh, I firmly believe um, you can't change something that you don't understand. Uh, or if you're going to do it, it's, it's going to be based on luck. And uh, I, don't, I don't think luck is a good strategy for uh, a liberal society. So we need to understand the regulatory state. As, as you said, it is absolutely the case that the, the clearest and long-term trend is just uh, massive growth. Uh, year over year, regardless of the nature of the Congress or the presidency, um, regulation is becoming more pervasive and more of it is infecting uh, how we do uh, business in this country, how we uh, manage the private sphere of life. It's reaching into areas that previously government had never been involved in. Uh, now, the 10,000 commandments started from this premise that it's growing. We, we better count things and understand how much it's growing and how much it costs and what are the trade-offs we're making. But it also provides a second benefit that is extremely important, and that is a snapshot, a window into understanding how the regulatory state continues to evolve. So very briefly on that, uh, it was about eight or ten years ago we, we started uh, looking at and analyzing and have now seen adopted throughout the policy community, left and right, uh, understanding and more concern uh, with new ideas following for how to address something that we call regulatory dark matter. So typically we think of regulation as a, a rule and a big rule book. It's gone through a formal process. Um, that process is laid out in law, and, and everybody does this under 
um, in the light of day with kind of fairness. Uh, dark matter is all the other things that happen at these agencies, S what they call circulars, memoranda, letters, uh, open inquiries. So an agency might open an inquiry to investigate something, never telling you whether they're actually going to write the rule. All of these things affect our behaviors and change the shape of the economy. That regulatory dark matter is part of the 10,000 Commandments project because it's how the regulatory state reaches into our lives. And what we've seen most recently, and I think equally as uh, pernicious, is what the Biden administration calls a whole-of-government approach. Uh, so we now have a whole-of-government approach to climate. We have a whole-of-government approach to equity issues, particularly around racial equity issues. And you might say, well, what does that mean? We want our government focused on you know, whatever his goals are. Uh, that means we have a climate office in uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development. We have climate offices in the Department of Education. And no longer do we have this uh, conceit that these agencies are experts removed from politics, uh, just uh, weighing facts and evidence. Uh, now it's very much right there in the open that these are political tools to be leveraged toward the political ends of one administration. And that whole of government approach is why we see uh, energy policy at the Securities and Exchange Commission. Yeah, that's a real pernicious way to, to go about it. And I am glad that there are people like you and your team there at CEI reading those circulars and memoranda and things that, frankly, I'm never going to read, but have an effect on my life and the life of everyone listening. So thank you for, for all you're doing, Kent. I appreciate it, Peter. You've been a, a great partner, and I look forward to talking to you again. How do we balance environmentalism and conservation with our energy needs, all without abandoning individual and property rights in the dust? This is the question driving the Energy and Environment Legal Institute, and I'm happy to have Steve Malloy with me, the uh, senior policy fellow and a board member there, to help me understand what they're doing. So, Steve, what are some of the priorities of the Institute at the moment? Well, we're focused on three issues which uh, sound separate, but they're really all related, uh, climate, energy, and what's going on at EPA. Um, you know, we work a lot on climate, and of course, that necessarily involves EPA and, you know, or I'm sorry, energy. And now that, uh, you know, uh, the Biden administration climate effort has failed in Congress, uh, the Biden administration is going to turn to EPA. So uh, we have some efforts going on there, including some litigation. And I think that, you know, we are sort of the, from my perspective, the leading group on this, thinking ahead, uh, doing the important work and, uh, you know, trying to make a difference. And so where, where do you find your most receptive audience with your work? And I guess, what is that work too? Is it just policy papers? I know you've written a book. Several of the other folks have written books. Um, you know, I guess Congress and the White House aren't, really a great place to move the needle right now. So how do you keep these issues front of mind? So I, I've been doing this for about 30 years, and I've always tried to uh, maintain an activist bit. Yeah, we write policy papers. I've written books. I run a pretty good uh, Twitter feed. Uh, I have my website, junkscience.com. Uh, so, you know, all that is very important for my own education, for the education of people that follow us. But uh, I do try to bring uh, activism and action to what we're doing. 
we've done that. Uh, you know, we've been active with Freedom of Information Act requests, litigation related to that, other litigation involving EPA. Uh, we work with other groups who are working on issues like ESG. Uh, we are working with other groups on climate. Uh, we just, you know, we try to, uh, you know, bring new ideas and energy. Uh, to a field that is very important for all of us, and you know, we we are we are standing against you know the green the green wave that is out there uh, pushing the climate agenda every day, and there aren't many of us that push back. Um, so you know, we have to work extra hard at it. Are there some obtainable wins in the near future? Well, sure. So I mentioned earlier that um, climate failed in Congress really to regulate climate. I mean, they're going to be spending a lot of money, but the effort to regulate uh, greenhouse gas emissions has failed. So the Biden administration is going to turn to the EPA, and you know EPA doesn't have authority to regulate greenhouse gases uh, very well. So they're going to use air quality rules to do that. Uh, and the you know the Achilles heel there is that all these air quality rules have to be um, reviewed by uh, an in independent science panel. Now, EPA has rigged the science panel they have right now so that they get the answers they want. And we have a lawsuit, which um, was the appeal of which was just filed in the D.C. Circuit. So we're going to be litigating that over the next year or so. Yeah, you know, you've got legal right there in the name of the Institute. So, so explain to us how the legal piece comes in, how big a part of what you do day to day is litigation or amici or yeah. just generally kind of creating a legal center. Litigation is, you know, it's more important to have, um, you know, one successful lawsuit than a lot of failed lawsuits. So, and, and I view this lawsuit that's going on right now, it's called Young versus EPA. It's in the DC circuit. Uh, I think it's going to be one of the most important lawsuits of all time because the lawsuit is about whether Congress intended for EPA to rig um, statutorily required peer review with, you know, agency cronies. And if, if we prevail, then that will stop the um, Biden administration from using air quality to regulate climate, which would be huge. Um, before I came to E&E Legal, I worked in the coal industry during the Obama years. And when climate legislation failed in Congress, uh, the Obama administration went to EPA and destroyed the coal industry. So we want to prevent that from happening again. Of course, this, you know, now the target is bigger than it's more than coal. It's natural gas in the oil industry. Is that a case you anticipate getting up to the Supreme Court? I hope so. I mean, you know, we'll see th how things go in the D.C. Circuit. But in the D.C. Circuit, they tend to side with regulatory agencies it's because there's a lot of Democrats in Washington, D.C. And so, I mean, this may be something that has to go to the Supreme Court. So your work at the Institute touches on two topics uh, that have been past episodes of the Giving Ventures podcast, the free idea of free market environmentalism and ESG, the environmental social governance movement we're seeing in the financial world. So on the idea of free market environmentalism, do you feel that there is more bipartisan traction on such a path or is there still a lot of work to do to make that the predominant way of thinking? Yeah, well, I'm not really sure what people mean by free market environmentalism. Uh, you know, we have laws and regulations that have been passed democratically. A lot of those really sort of overreach. But nonetheless, you know, we have those. And as long as company, companies abide by the, you know, duly issued laws and regulations, well, you know, that, that, that should cover everything. So, 
Um, I, you know, we're all for property rights. Of course, you know, property owners take care of their property the best. Uh, the government should not be confiscating land and, uh, you know, using it as it wishes for, you know, political gain. Uh, property should be owned by individuals. So, you know, we're all for that. But, you know, free market environmentalism, um, you know, we're, we're for free markets and freedom. And what's your outlook on the ESG movement? Do you think it's going to continue to evolve in the negative direction in the new year? Or do you think there's potentially some some hope rays of light out there? Yeah, so th- this is something I've been involved in for more than 20 years. Um, and uh, I used to run a publicly traded mutual fund dedicated to combating what was then called corporate social responsibility now has evolved into ESG. And so any legal is involved with some other groups uh, in pushing back um, against the ESG movement, we've had notable success this year. Uh, a lot of we've gotten uh, a lot of states to uh, wake up and take action against uh, these ESG investors that are coming in and trying to uh, or working against um, industries that are important to states, like the oil and gas industry in, in Texas, for example. You know, the work that we're all doing has shaken up the ESG industry quite a bit. But, of course, I don't think they're going to go away quietly. So I anticipate that 2023 is going to be a very exciting year in terms of the ESG uh, fight. Yeah, it doesn't seem like an issue that is going anywhere anytime soon. (laughs) There's a lot of, fortunately, a lot of different groups taking more notice on the conservative side. Yeah, I mean, we're we're looking at, you know, uh, banks, which represent $130 trillion in assets. They've lined up for this. Um, you know, in terms of climate for net zero, uh, which is something that is really just sort of a fantasy. There's no one has any plans for getting to net zero. There, and we know wind and solar don't work, yet these you know, banks are pushing for, for something that is impossible to happen. And um, one of the things we're trying to do is draw the attention of policymakers on the state level and federal level to this fact that, you know, these people are pushing for ESG, but have no plans how they would actually implement it. And a good example of this is in, you know, California, where uh, while they are dismantling their grid, you know, getting rid of the, they already got rid of all their coal, they're in the process of shutting down their gas, uh, gas plants, and just generally weakening their grid. At the same time, they're burdening their grid with a mandate for electric vehicles. And so that's why, you know, now, every summer, there's going to be blackout warnings in California because they're tearing apart the grid but burning it at the same time. So we don't want that to happen in the rest of the country. I mean, you got to write off California, I guess. But, um, you know, I, I, I'd like to see some oversight done by Congress and states of the utilities and the public service commissions and uh, the, the regulators and the grid operators in the space because everyone is acting irresponsibly. Well, we're glad that Energy and Environmental Legal Center is out there advocating for this and, and keeping the the word out on, on a lot of issues that don't always rise to the top of the headlines, uh, but are really, really critical. So thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. All right, Pete. Thank you. The name of our next organization gets right to the point. The Institute for Energy Research does just as the name implies. IER produces studies and commentary relevant to energy production, oil and gas, climate regulations, and all that goes into powering America. Tom Pyle, an erstwhile colleague of mine from our days at Coke Industries, is president of IER. Tom, glad to have you here. So why don't you uh, add a little to the description of IER that I gave? Great, will do. And thanks for having me and uh, wish everyone a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. So I would say, you know, a lot of people don't associate conservative or free market groups with watchdog agencies. 
But I, I kind of like uh, describe us as a watchdog for consumers, right? I mean, our job in Washington is to figure out what these policies are going to do and how they're going to impact real people, businesses, the economy, and all that stuff. And then also working with our sister advocacy organization, the American Energy Alliance, we not only give you uh, information and empower you with facts, but we give you the tools to, to participate in that process, right? To comment on rulemakings, to write your reps, to engage. Uh, we, we do a legislative scorecard and all that stuff. So it's really more of a consumer-oriented or consumer-focused organization in Washington. And we call ourselves the True North uh, uh, in terms of, of how we approach these issues, because we don't waver from from our, our point of view, which is that markets uh, are, are vastly superior uh, in sorting out uh, what are the important uh, energy sources and, and, and how to best uh, move forward as an economy and as a family, quite honestly. That's a great frame up. Now, we're recording this as we slip into winter of 2022. We know with the war in Ukraine, that the outlook for energy prices and even availability for energy in Europe is not that great over the next few months. Is the U.S. slated for the same fate or are our policies going to leave us better off? Where do we stand on that? So I think there are a few fundamental differences between Europe and the United States. Uh, first, we have a relatively strong legal system still, even though there are uh, pressures um, uh, against pushing against that. We have the rule of law. We have property rights, which I think is a huge distinction between Europe. So, for example, landowners here have a piece of the action when it comes to oil and gas production. So they they get a piece of that uh, because they own the subsurface, whereas in Europe, where they still have a lot of, of oil and gas resources. In England, for example, the crown owns uh, the subsurface. So what incentive do landowners, property right, property owners have to allow people to come on their property and produce oil, right? So the, those are good, big, distinct differences. But with respect to the policies, we are headed right down, right down that same path. Europe is about 15 years, 10, 15 years ahead of us in this grand scheme to redesign our energy markets and have politicians and, gov- and, and bureaucrats do so, right? Um, unless and until we start to unwind those policies and get out of the get the government out of the business of energy, picking our energy sources, the types we can use, picking the types of cars we can drive, etc., we are headed uh, right in that same direction with respect to the, the problems and challenges in Europe. Now, one of your tenants, one of IER's tenants, is really around this idea of public policy trade-offs, which goes into so much stuff. You frame it on your website as, quote, it is inappropriate to compare idealized government actions with real-world market outcomes. Now, we know market problems happen, distortions happen. So what is the right way for government to to play a role in ensuring a functioning energy market? I mean, do you advocate for something completely hands-off? Or how did, what does that look like in reality? Our motto is first do no harm. Right, uh, it's pretty simple. Is why it, w- the government should set the rules so that everyone com- can compete at a level playing field. They should stop picking winners and losers. Right, like they shouldn't dictate the types of sources that we have available to us. And when it comes to environmental protection and public health, I think the answer is set the standard, but don't dictate the technology. And I'll just give you one perfect example of a perverse 
uh, incentive in, in environmental uh, improvement. There's this thing called new source review, right? Which basically anytime a company, a manufacturer, coal, plant, you name it, wants to make an improvement to their facility, they have to start the whole entire regulatory process all over again. And so there's zero incentive to make improvements in an existing structure, an existing plant to reduce emissions, for example, right? So to me, you know, getting rid of these layers and layers of duplic duplicitous, unnecessary regulations while preserving that core, set the standard, let us figure out how to achieve it, and then, and then you get a win-win, basically. IER published a paper last year that starts out this way, quote, the world is getting warmer and sea levels are rising. What matters is the magnitude of the increases, their impact, and what can be done about them, end quote. So that's not the normal uh, denialism that groups on the right like to get labeled with. Well, I shouldn't say like to get labeled with, but are labeled with constantly. So what can groups like IER do to create a more productive dialogue around these climate policies? Well, uh, you know, my, my first thing is just to continue to publish facts, fact-based, rational material, right? I mean, if we could take the emotion, some of the emotion out of this conversation and get down to sort of, okay, what is the problem and what can be done to achieve it? Uh, but unfortunately, there's a lot of other factors involved in this conversation. There are ideolo ideologies and dogmas that really just sort of prevent that conversation from happening. So I'm not one to shy away from calling out the inconsistencies of the views of the more extreme climate activists. You know, they were for natural gas before they were against it before we actually had the technology to produce abundant amounts of natural gas. They were um, for this, this technology called carbon capture, right? And now they're opposed to it because why? It's becoming more market sustainable, right? It's becoming a technology that can actually be utilized because in a lot of cases, it's not about the climate for them. It's about this source versus that source. Nuclear is a perfect example. It's a completely carbon-free source of electricity generation. And yet, it is off the table. It's being decommissioned in Germany. It's being decommissioned in California. Um, we also need, this is on us, we need to do a better job of defending market-based solutions. Right? I mean, in Washington, there's this pressure to do something. Right? And what the result is, is usually more government intervention and more market distortions. And then the problems compound and then they say, oh, we got to fix this. This is terrible. So what do they do? Propose another government solution that comp further compounds the problem. Whereas if, if we relied on markets, uh, we've seen historically time and time again that they produce the best outcomes for both consumers and other societal goals and values like environmental protection. Yeah, I think all that's right. It's a it has to be a robust conversation and, as you say, an honest conversation. And otherwise, nothing gets done. And if the goal is to make positive things happen, you have to have that dialogue. We also need to resist dogmas on both sides, right? I mean, if something came along that was better than oil for, for transportation and otherwise, we'd be for it. It has to be the, mar the market, entrepreneurs, technology. Those are where we're going to find that next thing, not some back room, you know, not some bureaucrat bureaucratic agency in D.C., so as we wrap up, what's on the docket as a, a new Congress comes in here in this new year? 
Well, hopefully, um, a lot of the stuff we're talking about, right, we at least have one chamber uh, who is market-oriented. Republicans are going to take over the House. Uh, we have a very ambitious agenda uh, for IR this year. We want to lay out a blueprint for, for energy policy, both on the legislative side, but also because we do have an administration that is, you know, kind of anti-production uh, here in this country. Uh, we we want to lay out a number of areas where we think that Congress should conduct oversight over, for example, that recent uh, large bill they call the Inflation Reduction Act has trillions of dollars in subsidies uh, for different, you know, pet energy sources. We want to make sure that Congress, uh, you know, has aggressive oversight as to how they spend our taxpayer money on that. So those are the kind of things we're going to work on at the beginning of the year. We're excited about starting that conversation and hopefully getting some results. Well, Tom Pyle, look forward to seeing what you and the Institute for Energy Research do as this new Congress comes in and, uh, and we continue to plow ahead. Thanks so much. Thank you, Peter. Take care. I really like Tom Pyle's point about the need to have honest conversations. In the energy arena, particularly as it spills into the climate debates, strawman arguments and other bad faith tactics tend to rule the day. Thankfully, groups like Competitive Enterprise Institute, Energy and Environment Legal Institute, and the Institute for Energy Research are on the scene to advocate for sound, fair policy solutions. A number of Donors Trust clients support all three of these organizations, just as they support most of the groups that we've featured here on the Giving Ventures podcast. These givers use their donor advised fund with us to help advance a mission of limited government, personal responsibility, and free enterprise, helping to bring liberty to everyone. If you aren't among those with a fund yet, but think here at the end of the year that it might be something you'd find valuable, well, visit our website at donorstrust.org and poke around, see what you can learn. And of course, you can always call our office or email me, tellmemore at donorstrust.org, and that'll get to us and, and we will continue a conversation. We are always happy to help you get a fund set up, including here at the end of 2022 or whenever it makes sense for you. Well, that's it for today. We will be back in a couple of weeks with a new topic and a new slate of groups that you will not want to miss. Make sure you are subscribed to the Giving Ventures podcast and your favorite podcast catcher. And uh, we really appreciate you listening. Thank you for being a giver. Let's talk more soon. Thank you.